Welcome to GMFC Studios, God's production company. Praise the Lord. Good morning. Happy New Year. Deeper than that. 
And uh, so I was just meditating and talking to the Lord. And one of the things that the Lord showed me, uh, and he reminded me of something that Bishop Dalton Griffin had said. He, when they were talking to him, he was in an interview, and I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was, you know, just after he had introduced the theology of inclusion and, um, you know, things between that time and uh, his transition. He was talking, he was in an interview, um, and he had made a statement in reference to um, the question, I think the question that was posed was something to the effect of, you know, how did you get where you are from where you were? Because there was a definite shift in his theology and his teaching as it related to the kingdom of God, and um, as people refer to as the afterlife. And one of the things that he said was this. He said that he could not rationalize within himself a loving God who would do all of the things that the Bible says he would do for those that are in sin. And he began to, to um, reconcile that God was a God of love and that God loved all of us and he sent his son to die for us and that, that um, act of redemption was for everyone, period. Which it is for everyone. But there's a component that um, everyone has to engage in and that's belief. True and real belief in what Jesus did. The acceptance of which converts we're called converts, and we're called converts to the extent that we uh, are no longer what we were prior to our belief, but we've become something different after our belief. Our belief then is manifest in our behavior. But he couldn't reconcile this idea that God would punish us for all eternity in such torment um, because he's a God of love. And I begin to uh, just hear the voice of the Lord as I you know was struggling with his response and I have you know great respect for um, Bishop Pearson and the impact that he has uh, on the kingdom both prior to um, you know, shifting in his theology and thereafter and, um, you know, and God did amazing things through him for the body but I still struggled with how this happened. I, and I remember he came here to Columbus, Ohio, um, and my spiritual uh, father, uh, outside of my own father, Bishop Lloyd B. Weiser, was uh, Bishop Fonderleer Wilson, uh, who knew him. And he, in, in the initial stages of this theology, the Bishop Wilson brought him and sat down with him and trying to explain this theology. Um, so we heard this. He's been here. Um, I've met him. And I felt that his desire was not to do anything to harm the body, but to grow the body. So I struggled with myself as to, you know, the fallout of everything. And then I struggled with his explanation of how he got to where he was. And this is what I heard from God, and this goes in line with what um, I've been teaching over the last couple of months. The church for a long time, in fact, for, you can go back you know, multiple years and look at recordings and videos of uh, preachers, great preachers and teachers of the faith, who, if you look at and analyze the sermons that we are used to, the character of God that is explained, I can see now, because of what God has shown me, why some have such trouble reconciling that a loving God could still bring such judgment and justice. And 
I see the church in a position where it has focused on the priestly role and denied the kingly role of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he is both king and priest. Kings, if you, if, if you have time, I would encourage you to go back over the last few weeks and, and listen to some of the things that I've explained related to being a king and being a priest. But a king's role is starkly different than a priest's role. The king's role is about judgment and justice and execution of these things. A priest's role is about salvation and grace. And I begin to understand that the reason many people are struggling with this idea of God um, allowing torment to come into the life, the eternal life of people who reject his son, is because the church is very good at teaching and preaching the priestly side of our king but has not been so good at teaching the kingly side of our king. And I think that it's important that the church understand the full facet, or else many of us will find ourselves in a place where it is difficult to reconcile the righteousness of God against the love of God, the demand of God for righteousness and holiness versus the love of God and his grace that is extended to us. I, I believe it's time for the church to begin to stand up because we possess the key of David. And this is what I want to talk to you about today. And there are two foundational verses that I'm going to use this morning. The first is Revelation, the first chapter and the sixth verse. The Bible says, and Jesus has made us uh, kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, it's important that you understand that there's purpose behind the reason why God makes a statement in his holy word that identifies two specific roles related to Christ and related to the church. Now, we understand if you're taking notes or you're highlighting or underlining, underline, underline the king and underline the priest because this is the just where we have to see and understand what God is doing. Now, if you move down to verses 17 and 18 of the same chapter, the first chapter of the book of Revelation, you'll find that verses 17 and 18 say, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. In the Gospels, Jesus offered keys to all who have a revelation of Christ, an understanding of Christ, a, an acceptance, a belief of Christ. And in the book of Matthew, the 16th chapter, verses 18 through 19, it tells us, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you, here it goes, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Have we been taught primarily to use the keys that we've been given, but only for individual salvation? This is the question that I pose to the body of Christ. Is the primary teaching that we have received in the history of the church primarily focused on individual salvation and individual salvation alone? Because if it is, then the keys 
for corporate salvation have taken a back seat to the point that we don't like David. Have we been taught to use the keys that we've been given for more than salvation and salvation alone, but also for righteous justice? We have keys that we have not used. There is no problem with priestly justice. That means mercy for the center uh, you know, that results in uh, salvation, mercy uh, for the sinner that results in salvation. But to every Israelite, kingly justice has the reward of salvation and salvation is derived from the king's office as well. You see, his purpose is to judge and make war. The king uh, judges and makes war. In war, the king brings salvation from those who are intent on destroying the nation. We have people today under the influence of spirits that are intent on destroying a harvest from the land. We have whole nations intent on destroying America and destroying Israel. In the book of Romans, the 11th chapter, it promises the church, the nation of Israel, as a harvest field. And if we are to gain the priestly justice of the harvest, it is becoming more and more apparent that we must recover the keys to kingly justice and move in them as quickly as possible for our time is quite short. Any national leader who promises to destroy a future harvest such as Israel should meet a prayer, a prayer to God that says, Save him or kill him, and do it now. If this who comes against the harvest of God refuses to repent, call the ambulance. This is the kind of prayer that the church is not used to. This is the kind of justice that the church is not used to asking for. There are many of you right now that have just heard what I said and are probably scratching your head and I've never been taught to pray like that. that. That doesn't seem like Jesus and like are we really supposed to pray in that fashion? Go with me in the word of God. Let me reintroduce you to the church of Philadelphia. Jesus said unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these uh, things. Say he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Revelation is the third chapter and the seventh verse. Now the keys of the kingdom open and close doors of salvation as well as doors of judgment. And this is why the covenant of sure mercy becomes a foundation for every application of kingly justice within the kingdom of God. Now, if we firmly establish this foundation, the, the foundation of sure mercies, and study this idea of sure mercies of David, because it is the substance of faith connected to justice itself. It is the execution of the kingly role. And it is essential to leave Jesus' words to the church at, at Philadelphia within the context of his interactions with the other churches. His initial words are very priestly. And we're going to see this kind of idea manifest or this uh, process or outline manifest in how God, uh, how Jesus addresses these churches. His initial words are very priestly in verses 7 and 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things, say, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, are his words to five other churches more kingly, priestly, or are they a combination of both, even though the church has spent 
pretty much its entirety focusing on just one aspect of God's Word. Are these keys to be used only kingly or only priestly, or are they to be used as both? How does Jesus use them in uh, his interaction with the other churches? This gives us a, an idea by which we can follow to bring better understanding and clarity to the things that he is saying to these churches. Now, the first church that Jesus speaks to is the church of Ephesus. And Jesus has good things to say about the church at, at Ephesus, and he commends them, but he also has one area of correction. He has some good stuff to say, but he also identifies something that needs correcting. Revelation, the second chapter in the fourth verse, states, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, if we analyze Jesus' initial use of the keys at, uh, at Ephesus, you'll find that it is judicial. And it's very much like Elijah's prayer for three and a half years. One prayer stopped the rain, and the other threatened to stop all anointing. Jesus is promised to use the key of David to shut off their anointing if they did not repent and return to their first work. If they refused to return to their first love and do their first works again, then the anointing for the lampstand would be taken away. Now, Jesus' first use of the key of David at Ephesus was a judicial use, not a priestly use. Jesus was promised to use the key of David, guaranteed that the ministry of the lampstand would completely dry up if there was no repentance. The key of David is available. It's available to us right here, right now. The question isn't whether it is available, but how we are using it. Jesus died to put this key in our hands, and it's time that we use it to its fullest. Well, let's look and analyze the next church. The next church is Smyrna, where Jesus outlined a coming persecution and martyrdom. And it's important that the church pay attention to this, because I believe that this is occurring right now in parts of the world. Jesus warns them about uh, what is to come. And he commands them to be faithful even unto death and they will gain the crown of life. And that was probably not a welcome message for the people of Smyrna, but it came as it is coming today to many Christians in Islamic countries around the world. If Islam rules a nation, you can just about bet that the Christians that are in that nation have a common bond with the believers of Smyrna. Persecution and death. We know the history. We've seen the beheadings and the uh, thrust to stamp out Christianity in Islamic countries and nations. Isaiah 9 and 6 and through 7 state, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Look at the uh, declaration of God connected to 
Jesus as it represents not just a priestly role, but also a kingly role. Hosea chapter 9 gives us the foundation for the key of David of which Jesus speaks. But the key of David is obvious in the passage. It is the anointing to order and establish the kingdom. You ought to write this down. The key of David is the anointing to order and establish the kingdom with, as the Bible says, with mishpat justice or judgment and um, they, they use another word, sedakah, which is a uh, word that represents righteousness, but righteousness that is based upon an ethical or moral standard of God as set forth in his holy word. So Isaiah 22 and 20 through 22 further amplifies this issue when it states, Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Elikim, the son of Melchiah, I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. You see, the key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. We see again the demonstration of a governmental kingly role that is expressed in the text. But we've just focused on the priestly role. We've only taught the priestly role, the grace and the, the mercy of God. I remember growing up and thinking, uh, you know, to myself, you know, I really love my dad. Phenomenal man, great father. Till the first time he gave me a whooping. Now I know, you know we don't whoop our kids anymore. Or at least a lot of people don't. And it's manifest in what we're seeing in the youth of today. But I remember thinking prior to the first whooping I ever received, I wish I could only say there was one, but there wasn't. You know, I, I, I love my dad. He's phenomenal. And I only saw him in the covering and protecting and loving and keeping me and blessing me role. In essence, a priestly role, a role where salvation and mercy were brought out. And I didn't recognize until my first whooping that he also carried another role with him as father. And that was a kingly role where righteousness had to be established and justice was demanded. And you begin to see the holistic side of things. And then you, you can understand the priestly side better in connection with the kingly side. I understood better the role of my father and it helped me to become who I am today. You see, the issue here is a governmental anointing as established in Isaiah that establishes the kingdom through judgment and righteousness. If we do not practice both aspects, kingly and priestly, we cannot fully uh, operate in the anointing. What is the anointing? The anointing is the authority and power by which to establish the will of God in the earth. So the issue here then becomes governmental anointing that establishes the kingdom through judgment and righteousness. So when Jesus said in the New Testament, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, he was speaking about the anointing. That's the power and the authority of a king. For what purpose? To establish justice, governmental throne room justice, that he bought and paid for with his own death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus confirms for us the Davidic covenant of sure mercy. So when Jesus spoke to the church at Pergamos, he commended them for holding fast to his name. But then he identified an issue 
which they were tolerating sin in their midst. And the, the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, which uh, are dangerous. In Revelation 2, verse 16, Jesus talks like the judge of all the earth when he says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You see, the keys of the kingdom deal with justice and judgment from a platform of righteousness. They're released by the God-breathed words that we pray and the prophetic declaration that we make. The, the, the power, the anointing, which is the power and the authority for the church to function in its governmental kingly role is the breathed words we pray and the prophetic declarations we make. It's time for the church to stand up and begin to function in the fullness of the power and the authority by which God has given us through the calling on our life. Jesus compliments the church at Thyatira for their works and their increase, but if the increase is because of tolerating sin, then they're on a destructive path. I, 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 I was thinking about some of the churches that we know and we've heard, especially here lately, it seems like a lot of things are being released, and I don't know if it's just because information is more accessible now than it's ever been before, or God is just pulling back the cover so that what is happening to the body can be seen. But I think about a lot of the churches that are practicing questionable things or are tolerating the fellowship of believers or alleged believers to do and act in any old kind of way, even if it's sin, for the purpose of decreeing an increase. There, there's a a big brouhaha right now, as they say, uh, with a specific uh, singer-turned-pastor within the body of Christ that uh, makes an uh, open confession and, and uh, says to the church that uh, has stood up to challenge the things that he is doing or allowing, and uh, he says, well, 150 people got saved, but when you look carefully with a spiritual eye at actually what took place in the service, you have to challenge the assertion that's being made that 150 anybody actually got saved in an environment that was not conducive to salvation, but was accepting of sin. And it reminds me of the church at Thyatira. For their works and their increase, God was pleased. But if the increase was because of tolerating sin, then they are on a destructive path. You see, the politically correct choice to tolerate Jezebel and sexual immorality brought Jesus the judge, the king, not Jesus the priest. Jesus commanded them to repent or they would find themselves thrown into a sickbed with great tribulation. Did Jesus tolerate seeker sensitivity? These are the things that we have to ask ourselves and begin to think about and meditate upon as we are working out our salvation, as the Bible declares, with great fear and trembling reverence not taking it for granted, but understanding that what we are doing, it deals with our in eternity. Let me get back to the church of Philadelphia. But just before I talk about Philadelphia, there was one more church. It was the church of Sardis. But Jesus commanded them to strengthen the things that remained. They had not finish the works that they were called to do. Every time I read and study the church of Sardis, it reminds me of my wife. My wife is like Jesus, and I am like the church of Sardis. And she comes into a room that I may be working on or trying to beautify in some form or fashion. 
and I'm really good at the beginning stages, the middle stages, and you know, coming right up to the finishing work, you know, putting all the pretty things in to, you know, the moldings and the things of this nature to kind of finish things off. I always just leave that and go on to the next project, and I'll finish it later. She, like Jesus, comes in and says, you need to finish the work you have started. She always reminds me to take my mind back to this church. They are called to finish the works that they were called to do. They were commanded to hold fast and repent or he would come upon them as a thief executing justice and judgment. When Jesus tells the church of Philadelphia that he had the key of David that could open and no one could shut and shut and no one could open, he was dealing with the anointing for justice and judgment. It is available. It not only comes upon churches, but it is available to the church for accomplishing the assignment of the church. This key should be used to close down the counterfeits that are among us. Yes, we are called to call out that which is counterfeit among us. Peter used it. Paul used it. The end time church is promised a double of what the early church possessed. The time is at hand now. In Hebrews, the first chapter, the sixth through the ninth verse, we are given the New Testament law of the extended scepter. Hebrews, the first chapter, verses six through nine. This is the law of the extended scepter. And it says this, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. In the days of uh, Mordecai and Esther, when Esther was weighing the price of helping save the Jewish nation, trying to make up in her mind as to what steps she should take and the possible uh, outcomes of those steps that she was considering, her chief issue was whether or not the king would extend the scepter once she went into him without being summoned, which was the law of the kings in those days. You see, one of the great blessings of the new covenant is that every believer who qualifies has an open, extended scepter. We are given the ability to enter the throne room of the creator of the heavens and the earth. In truth, if you analyze and understand scripture correctly, you'll find that we are already actually in the throne room because the Bible declares we are seated in Christ. And if we are seated in Christ, we are where Christ is. And if we are where Christ is, we have to recognize then that we are already in the throne room because Christ sits in the throne room at the right hand of the majesty on high, our Holy Father. So then what are the qualifications? What is it that we have to uh, hold ourselves to account? Well, one, we have to receive Jesus as our Savior and accept his blood, the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of all sin. And two, we have to choose to walk in and maintain righteousness, not according to the standards of man or the morality of humanity, but according to God's moral standards. You see, the scepter that is extended to us is a scepter of righteousness. So the open scepter demands that we walk in the spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh and maintain righteousness 
through the power of the blood. For all those who choose to walk that way have an extended scepter, guaranteeing them a hearing in the throne room. They can access not only salvation as a priest, but justice as a king. Where are the Christian kings and where is the justice of the Lord for the Jesus which has died? I'm here to tell you that the fivefold ministry has failed when we have hardly anyone walking in the fullness of Christ. The whole purpose of team ministry is to bring the church into the fullness of Jesus. When the church is only equipped to minister priestly salvation and is utterly ignorant of kingly governmental justice, then we have a major catastrophic failure in the assignment of the fivefold ministry. And until the church can stand up and move the hand of God, as Paul did in Acts 13, we have failed to prepare a generation to wind up the age. The scepter of righteousness is extended. We must become comfortable in our kingly call. God has made us both priests and kings. In Matthew 28, Jesus gave the great commission sending us out to make disciples of all nations. In Matthew 24, the disciples had asked him what would be the sign of his coming in the end of the age, and his answer is found in verses 7 through 14, which at times can be uh, really difficult to hear, especially when you are looking and listening to them within the context of the truth of God. For the nation, the Bible says, will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to the tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. You see, in this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Some preachers will sweep this passage away by declaring it only applies to the church in existence prior to AD 70. Many passages of scripture had both an immediate application and a futuristic application. You see, eschatology that claims to be victorious and then removes the cross so that victory can be defined by not having to lay down your life should be suspect. Red flags should be going off. Bells and whistles should be rearing in your head. Removing the cross always fails. We have transitioned from uh, nation against nation where we know the location of our enemy to kingdom against kingdom where the enemy can be the ne our next door neighbor and uh, you know uh, the bowing and the worship of demons who are intent on killing anybody who is a believer or even a Jew uh, can be right next door to us but in the midst of all of this is the promise of verse 14 and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come She's right in the middle of all the persecution and all the war and all the diverse things that's happening. It seems there is an anointing to live above it until a goal of witnessing the gospel in every nation is completed. John 15, uh, 26 through 16 and 2 gives us further insight into the kingdom against kingdom when it says, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness because you have 
be with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Think about that. Are we in that time? We're living in a time where from mosque to mosque, people are being taught that whoever kills a Christian or a Jew is doing God service. We are the infidels. We are the little, uh, big Satan and little Satan. And while our forefathers fought and died for a Christian nation and would not have tolerated radical Islamic belief anywhere within our nation, a perverse understanding of the freedom of religion allows a cancer to grow right in the midst of this great nation. Christians in America better wake up to the fact that persecution, even unto death, is not too far away. Being groomed in our very neighborhood and is growing right under our noses. The church must rise up in a kingly anointing and demand throne room justice. If we fail to act, Instead of gaining a harvest from Islam, we will become its victims. Very interesting that the church was begun in a priestly intercession for salvation, but will wind up the age to do the things we've been called to do. We have to transition from our birth into our calling. We have to transition into a kingly intercession for covenant justice. Luke 23 records the priestly intercession of Jesus as he was hanging on the cross. Verse 33 through 34 state, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. See the prayer, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, is the ultimate priestly prayer. It is the prayer for the release of salvation. In Acts chapter 7, where Paul is orchestrating the stoning of Stephen, we find again this same priestly intercession. And we find that this priestly intercession is consistent with what Jesus modeled. Acts 7, 59 through 60 tells us, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen fell asleep after he prayed, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. That was the ultimate priestly intercession that's necessary for the birthing of the church age. But we don't remain in infancy if we are to experience the fullness of our existence. Once Jesus ascended and took a seat, he took a seat as judge of all the earth. This is another dimension of government that's being added to the birth of the church. The end of the church age is very different from the beginning of the church age. The intercession of the end-time martyr reflects a transition. Revelation chapter 5, 6 through 8 states, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls 
full of uh, incense, which are the prayers of the saints. As we look at this scripture, we allow ourselves to be inquisitive. The question is, are the prayers of the saints in Revelation prayers for priestly salvation? Or are these prayers for kingly justice? Well, if you look at verses 9 through 10, it gives us a clue. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Now in verse 10, we see the use of the word uh, basilius, and it's translated kings and priests in the beginning of verse 10. But as you analyze the original text, you'll find that in the end of verse 10, when it says, uh, we shall reign on the earth, basilio, it's used in that, uh, in that uh, place of the text. Basilius could be translated kings or a kingdom of priests because it's a noun. But basilio is a verb and it cannot be translated as a noun because it is an action. There's a big difference if I'm just one of a group of many who have a kingly responsibility as an individual. But in a group, I would yield to someone more qualified than I to shoulder the burden. But when we come to the verb, it leaves us no wiggle room to escape. It says we shall do this action. What is the action? It is the action of a king. We shall exercise kingly authority. Why do we have the anointing? The anointing comes so that we might have the authority and the power to take action. Every individual is responsible for action, meaning we must execute justice in the earth. It's obvious that the prayers of the saints are prayers seeking justice, and there has been a transition. For those who might question this interpretation and think it just be arbitrary, we only have to go into chapter 6 and verse 9 through 10 to realize that the priestly intercession of the saints has transisted or transist, uh, transitioned uh, and changed from the beginning of the church to a kingly cry for justice. Verses 9 through 10 state, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Hello! O Lord, holy and true, unto you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. In verse 10, the saints are not crying for salvation. They're not modeling, forgive them. They're seeking and crying for justice. Where is the heart cry of the church for justice? The prayers of the saints are 99% priestly simply because the church has not been taught to enter the kingly convention. Religious freedoms our forefathers bought with their blood are being stolen. Kingly anointing that God has given us is the only thing that will stop the thefts if we would just but use it. A culture war is being lost by a church who refuses to unlock its armory. See, in the process of presenting this truth, a number of objections will come. And they will come from those who remain staunchly ensconced in the priestly mindset. One scripture that I can think of that could be used as an objection is Luke 9, 51 through 56. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and set messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him 
but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now, if you look at most Bibles, you will see an asterisk where uh, that, you know, in, in the text, which indicates that in the actual Greek text, this statement was not actually included. And many scholars believe that this verse was actually added. Now, the verse should actually read, but he rebuked them, and they went to another village. Now, all we have to do is project what would have happened to the plan of salvation if James and John had called fire down on the Samaritans. How many people would have stood up to condemn Jesus with James and John, ready to thunder fire from heaven upon them? Had they gotten their way, all of Israel would have heard about the Elijah manifestation. The plan of salvation would have been thwarted. So it's obvious that knowing not what manner of spirit you are of, even if it is included in the text, does not mean you cannot call for justice. What it means is you have no uh, knowledge of the will of the spirit or whose will it is in that moment. Verses 55 through 56 have been used as a club to impart guilt on anyone who dares to judge another. When Jesus ascended and was seated at the right hand of God, he becomes the judge of all the earth, making justice available then to every believer. And every believer today is firmly persuaded that salvation is on demand, available for anybody, anytime, day or night. And most Christians can lead someone to the Lord anytime they find a hearing ear to hear what the Spirit of God is saying. All of us accept and believe in salvation on demand. We truly embrace the scripture as God's inerrant word. And once we embrace the scripture as God's inerrant word, we are stuck with a major transition from the beginning of the church age, which is birthed from the call to salvation, to the end of the church age, which is called to justice. See, this transition involves the emergence of a kingly anointing for justice. We are told in Revelation chapter 11 verses 3 through 6, and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemy. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues. Watch this. As often as they desire. These men are not walking in a priestly role. They're walking in judgment on demand. The intensity of the situations they encounter will determine the magnitude of judgment that they dispense. Verse 6 clearly states, so often as they desire. The two witnesses objected to this assignment and said, we want to save people. We can't, we can't judge. This isn't American Idol. This, this isn't America's Got Talent. We, we can't judge people. Would Jesus say to them, you know not what manner of spirit you are of? I think not. Because he never said it in the first place. Intercession in the church changes from the beginning of the church age where it is 100% priestly to the end of the church age where it is very, very kingly. The real question for us now is not whether we can grow into justice on demand, but can we even represent Jesus the judge? Faith 
to act demands biblical foundation. Our heart and our mind must agree that praying for judgment is God's revealed will. The church today has a dangerous deficit in God's word. If we are stuck in a priestly mentality, we are incapable of representing Jesus the judge. How much of the harvest will be lost because we refuse to qualify to participate with Jesus the judge? Knowing Jesus as Savior allows us to represent Jesus the Savior. And knowing Jesus as the giver of the Holy Ghost allows us to minister Holy Ghost. Knowing Jesus as a healer releases us to pray for healing. Knowing Jesus the prophet reveals or uh, releases rather faith to prophesy. Knowing Jesus the judge releases faith to pray judgment. When you analyze the life of Peter and Paul, you'll find that they did it. Countless others have done it. What is wrong with us? Declare war on our faith deficit. Walk with Jesus the judge. Will you move with dominion and spirit-led power? Are you ready to listen and act in this, the hour which is at hand? For the time is short. We can no longer sit idly by and allow any and everything to take place. Especially in the body of Christ. I encourage you, my brothers and sisters, to continue to tune in week after week as I try to release to you the fullness of God's teaching. As I give you what God lays on my heart and speak life into you, emboldening you to act in the authority and the anointing that God has placed on your life, an anointing not to sit idly by, but an anointing to take action. This is a clarion call to the church to stand up because we possess This has been a production of the GMFC Studios. God bless you.